But good, good morning. Let, let us dive in here in our continuing study through our confession of faith. We, we started last week on chapter 5, the doctrine of divine providence. And, and last week we looked at a definition of, of God's providence as given to us by our Reformed forefathers. We saw the, the great commonality but in the, the shared witness between all of the confessions of faith, whether Paedo-Baptist or Credo-Baptist, we see the same kinds of things with respect to the definition of divine providence. We're going to see, similarly in paragraph 2, a, a unified voice among all of the Reformed, not only in terms of the definition of providence we saw in, ver- in paragraph 1, but in the, what I'm going to call the causality of providence. So that's our lesson today, is providence and causality. And we're introduced to a couple of terms that are helpful to us, I think, as we think through the doctrine of providence. Let's pray and seek the Lord's face as we consider his word together. Father, you are a good and awesome and a God who is most wise most to be praised. We thank you that in your wisdom you have created the world and that you govern it according to your divine, immutable, and infallible foreknowledge and your eternal decree. We thank you that you have, in a sense, pulled back the veil into into your own mind and declared in your word these things to us, that we can study them and by your Spirit's help can grow in our understanding. And I pray that this would not be merely an academic uh, exercise or experience for us, but rather that our hearts would be stirred, that we would come more and more to trust in your divine providence and the goodness of our God displayed therein. We ask this in Christ's name and for the sake of your people. Amen. So again, last week we looked at the definition of providence, in which God governs all things from the least to the greatest by his most wise and holy providence. And all those things according to the end, or the purpose, or the goal for which he's made them. Today, we're going to look at providence and causality. And this second paragraph, I think, is best outlined with with three different headings. Number one, reminding ourselves what we've already seen back in chapter 3 on God's decree, that God is the first cause of all things. And and we use the terms first and second cause today. We're not thinking chronologically. We're thinking logically. Uh, It is not that God acted first and then everything else happens subsequent to that, although that is true, but that's not necessarily what's meant by first cause and second cause with respect to divine providence. We'll define those terms as we go. But God is the first cause. And the second thing we want to observe is the immutability and the infallibility of providence. The immutability, the unchanging nature, and the infallibility, that it's without error, it's without even the possibility of error in God's divine providence. And thirdly, God's use of secondary causes. God's use of second causes. So God is the first cause, but that he makes use of second causes. So let's read together the text, or the paragraph, in chapter 5. Although, 
in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. So that there is nothing, or not anything, befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet, by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Notice that there's a, there's a connecting verb, or ne- connecting word here, although. And so if this, is a, this is referring our minds back to what was already covered back in chapter 3 on God's decree, that he has decreed from eternity whatsoever will come to pass. All things, and then here we say, although in relation to that foreknowledge, in relation to that decree of God, he is the first cause of all things. Because nothing happens that God has not, not only allowed in a passive sense to happen, but in a causal sense. God is the first cause of all things. And this is, of course, according to his foreknowledge and his decree. You'll notice the footnote in the confession in Acts chapter 2, in verse 23. And this is a, a profound example, an illustration of God as the first cause of all things. In, in Acts chapter 2, you, you know, of course, the scene. This is Pentecost. And, and, and following the dramatic, audible, visible display of the Spirit of God being poured out on his people, just as Christ had foretold. Following that event, Peter stands and preaches. And in verse 22, we're kind of in the middle of Peter's sermon here, but he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is Peter saying? That according to God's eternal decree, according to his his divine foreknowledge, his immutable decree, all these things have come to pass, even including the murder of his own son. Even including the crucifixion, death, and burial, and everything that went into that. The betrayal of Judas, or the betrayal by Judas. Pontius Pilate's actions. Caiaphas and, and all of the council and their actions. All of those things happened according to God's decree, according to his foreknowledge, according to the, the, the immutable and infallible providence of God. So God is the first cause. And we have this explicitly given to us in the Scriptures. We cannot say that these things, these things happened by accident, which is why our confession includes this phrase, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance. And so we could argue from the greater to the lesser, if in the, the, the grandest of all historical events, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, if that happened precisely as God decreed, then why would we think lesser things would be outside of God's control, outside of God's decree, outside of God's 
providential rule and governance. But the second thing, and it's related to this one, is the immutability and infallibility of providence. God's decree is such that all things come to pass. Notice the the word that, that Peter uses. It's the definite plan. This isn't the subjective plan or the temporal plan or the perspective plan of God. This is the definite plan of God. God has ordained these things. He's orchestrating and governing everything so that it comes infallibly and immutably to pass just as he decreed. And so this doctrine of providence stands upon God's decree. As we go back to chapter 3, for example... In paragraph 2, chapter 3, Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. There's nothing that's conditional in God's decree. It's not, it's, there's nothing that can thwart the plans, the decrees of God. They're going to come about immutably, without change. They're going to come about without out error. But if these things depend upon the, de- the doctrine of God's decree, then what does the doctrine of God's decree rest upon? The doctrine of God himself. The doctrine of God himself. So if we think kind of links in the chain, the doctrine of providence stands upon the doctrine of God's decree. The doctrine of God's decree stands upon our theology proper. And God himself is immutable. God himself is in Fallible. God himself is unchanging. His word is infallible. Now this should encourage us, and I think in a very practical way, to, to understand the doctrine of, of providence and the, doc, the, the immutable and infallible nature of God's decree and his working out that decree in creation and providence. How does that shape our prayers? See, we can become, in a sense, fatalistic, and err on that side and say, well, all things are predetermined, so it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we pray. Everything's going to happen as it's going to happen. I had a discussion uh, a year or so ago with a family member, not a believer, but had been exposed to some of the uh, less savory forms of dispensationalism and saying that God has, has already determined everything that's going to happen in the world Therefore, the conclusion was, it doesn't matter what we do. Now, how would you respond to that? How do you respond to that? How do you think about your own prayers if God's decree is infallible and immutable? Then why do we pray? Yeah. Yeah, our prayers change us. They conform us. They encourage one another. What else? We're commanded to. (laughs) Daddy says so. (laughs) That's always a sufficient answer. Uh, God gives us more answers than that, uh, as a wise father will, but that's a sufficient answer. But I think this should encourage our prayers, and rather than cause us to view the world fatalistically, when we pray, we know we are not changing God's eternal decree, are we? We are not changing all that God had before 
we were made, before the world was made, before this circumstances in which we find ourselves was made, God's decree had already, had already determined, had already prescribed what was going to happen. But according to his wise and perfect providence, he uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. Things do change as a, as, as a result of prayer. Not because God's eternal decree changes. Because he changes people. Changes circumstances. And that leads us really into the longer section where I want to spend a little bit more time and focus this morning is God's use of second causes. And the question of prayer is a legitimate issue to raise, legitimate subject to raise. In this, if, if God's decree is immutable, if it's infallible, if all things are going to come to pass just as he said, then why pray? One, that he said so. We're commanded to pray. Two, because through those prayers, God changes us. He conforms us. We believe that prayer is a means of grace. That by, by, by praying, God increases our faith. He stirs his people. He works in us. But he uses second causes. Notice the language in paragraph 2. And, and here, after that semicolon there, almost just, just past the middle of the paragraph, we see the word yet. So remember, the paragraph begins with although. Although, and that's a reference to the decree of God from eternity, that is true. Nothing takes place except what God has infallibly and immutably decreed. Yet, but, by the same providence, he ordereth them, all things, to fall out according to the nature of second causes either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So, although God is the first cause, yet, he uses second causes. See, it, it, it is possible, it is conceivable, that God could have made the world and then governed the world in such a way that he is actively creating and recreating everything all the time, and that he is the first cause of everything. But in his wisdom, that's not how he, that's not how he governs the world. He governs the world to operate according to these second causes. Now, what do we mean by that? There's a definition here, I think, from Dr. Renahan that's helpful. He says, everything that happens comes to pass providentially in fulfillment of the eternal decree. This does not, however, rule out the importance of second causes, which themselves are essential to the doctrine of providence and are the means God uses to accomplish his purposes. The two must be understood together. All things happen because of the decree. And the decree ensures that all things happen according to the order established by God through his decree. The second causes are the natural processes of the created order rooted in the decree of God. We see natural events and correctly ascribe natural reasons for them while not denying that they happen because of the decree. There are, the, the idea of second causes are, are laid out before us, and there's a, there's a key phrase, according to the nature of the second causes. What, what, what kinds of things are second causes? The answer is all created things. Everything that is not God is a potential second cause. 
God is the first cause of all things. He exists outside of his creation. He is not part of this created world. And all that he has made can be considered second causes. That includes the forces of nature. Because I think about the sermon text, we'll, we'll look at here in just a little while, the, the calming of the storm, when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. There were first causes for that storm. The, the, the Sea of Galilee is, is nearly 700 feet below the, the level of the Mediterranean Sea. It's got steep cliffs all around there. The air patterns are dramatic, and, and storms can come up in an instant. Those are second causes. The wind, the topography, the geology, the, 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 the water currents, the air currents, the, the way that the lake is shaped and its proximity well below sea level. All those are natural causes. But as we contemplate in the sermon today the reality of Jesus in a boat, asleep, with his disciples, who's the first cause of all those events? God is. And he makes use of second causes. And then there are three adverbs that help us to work through this a little more precisely. These second causes fall out according to the nature of second causes, either, and here's the three words, necessarily, freely, or contingently. Necessarily, freely, or contingently. Contingently. What do we mean by this? Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, in his commentary on the Westminster Confession, which, again, the language is identical here, so we can, we can, be, can find much help in his statement. He says, God needs no one else to help him. If he had wished, God could have planned to continuously create every action and event, each movement and thought in the history of the world. In other words, he could have remained the only cause of all effects. And yet God did not do that. In his wise providence, he chose to govern a world with patterns and regularities, where some events or actions cause other events or actions. Notice there's another footnote here in in our confession, it's in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. And there we read, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now this is part of the Noahic covenant. It's a covenant that God made through Noah with all of mankind, with all of the earth. That as long as the earth remains, these natural processes will continue. Well, that's a great comfort when we hear some of the environmental alarmism in our day, isn't it? God has promised, no, the world's not going to be destroyed by man. It's not going it's, it's to be covered with ice or covered with deserts um, outside of God's rule. Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah touches on these very same things, beginning in verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, notice the, the words, if this fixed order, speaking about nature, departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. See, this is just a few verses after. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, 31, where the Lord through Jeremiah says, in the days to come, I will make a new covenant with you, not like the covenant that I made 
with your fathers when I brought them out of Egypt, the covenant which they broke. And here, just a few verses later, the Lord said, here's how certain my covenant is. And God actually compares the certainty of his covenant to the certainty of even the natural order. And, and the implication there is that the natural order is a fixed, immovable aspect of all that we know. So necessarily, when we think about the, the, the qualifying words here in our confession, that these, these second causes, or he orders his providence to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, well, this, this has reference to things that are, that are certain within the natural order itself. Then we think about the law of gravity. If you were to climb up on the roof and you jump off, kids, what would happen? If you climbed up on the roof, number one, your mothers would be very upset with you. But secondly, what else would happen? If you climbed up on the roof and jumped, what would happen? Would you fly up into the air? Would you float away? Why? Why not? Why would, you, why would you fall immediately to the ground? Because gravity makes that necessary, doesn't it? We've had several rainy days recently. Kids, what happens if you run outside in the rain? What happens? You get wet, don't you? Why do you get wet in the rain? Because rain is water. That's what water does. It makes you wet, right? It's necessary. And so there's a necessary contention here. There are certain things, if you do this, this is going to happen. But saints, hopefully, by the Lord's help, we are wise enough to see this doesn't apply only to physical laws of nature. But as we've talked about the natural law of God, the works of the law that are written on man's heart, if you violate these things, there are necessary consequences. Romans 1 is exhibit A, isn't it? If you do not honor God as God, what is necessarily going to happen? God will eventually give you over to your own passions, to the lusts of your flesh. There is a first cause, God. There is a second cause, your own stiff neck, your own stubbornness your own unwillingness to submit yourself to the way things really are. Now, most people are sensible enough not to argue with the law of gravity. Most people are sensible enough that they wouldn't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. And they wouldn't just say, I don't believe in gravity. So I'm just going to flop the laws of nature, I'm just going to jump. Well, that's, we, know, we know how that would end but with the laws of God, natural laws of God, the immutable, infallible, fixed, moral law of God that's written on man's heart, we think we can play fast and loose with that and there are no necessary consequences for that. But it isn't true. See, there's a first cause, who is God, but there's a second cause, our own rebellion, our own sin, that causes our downfall. But there's a second, it's related, and we kind of, these three terms are, are three helpful categories, but, but they're not so distinct as that, the, as that they have no overlap at all. So the second one is freely. What is meant by freely? 
Well, as I used the example earlier, kids, if you run out into the rain, you're going to get wet. So that's a necessary consequence of being in the rain, being in the water. If you went out to Lake Conroe and you jumped out of the boat into the water, you're also going to get wet, right? Because that's what water is, it's what it does. But there's also a, a freeness of that, because if you're in the boat, in the lake, hopefully you have a choice about jumping or not jumping. You have a choice whether you go out into the rain or not go out into the rain. There, there, some things are, are orchestrated or fall out according to these second causes freely. Now, think, go back to Acts chapter 2. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, Peter declares, and he's not contradicting himself in any way, shape, or form, he says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, what's the first cause? God is the first cause. What's the second cause of the crucifixion of Christ? The lawless men. The sinful thoughts, the covetous hearts, the sinful actions of wicked men. If you look down further, <clears throat> down in verse 36, Peter closes the sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. See, God has done this. God has made him Lord and Christ by what means? By means of the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and the session of Christ, sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. All those things happen according to God's eternal decree. He is the first cause. God has done this. He is the one who's made him Lord and Christ. But by what means? By the second cause of Judas who betrayed him of all the men who arrested him, of Caiaphas and all the council who condemned him falsely, of Pilate who refused to stand up, even seeing that he had done nothing deserving of death. Even Pilate's own wife said, wash your hands of this whole situation. And then, of course, the Roman soldiers who, who are the ones who drove the spikes into his hands and feet and hung him on the cross. All of those things happened. Those were all second causes, and they were acting freely. They were acting according to their own free will. God is and was the first cause even of the sacrifice of his own son according to the immutable and infallible decree. And I think Peter understands this now by the power of the Spirit. He understands that both of these things are true. God is the cause of all things. It is God who has done this, and yet God has used the agency, the second cause of sinful men to carry out his purposes. However, we, when we confess this, and Peter declares the same thing, that there were second causes who acted according to their own freedom. Now, I would encourage you to peek ahead to chapter 9 in the confession of free will, because we want to, we're going to nuance when we get there what we mean by free will, but there is truly a freedom. You can read that, or even a larger treatment of it, uh, Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will is another good example, where men are free, but they're free to act according to their own sinful nature. 
but immutably and infallibly, God makes use of the freedom of the creature to accomplish his purposes. And we think about all the things that happened, not only in the crucifixion, that's, that's the, in a sense, the grandest and most dramatic example of this, but in our own lives. Don't we see this daily? Our own free choices. Uh, some are lawful choices we make. We've, choos- we've chosen door number one instead of door number two. And then as we look back on our lives and we see the implications of those decisions. And God has used those free second causes to accomplish his purposes. And I think back on our, on our our own life. We were talking about this with some brothers and sisters not long ago. Uh, our, our move to Houston uh, next month will be 19 years ago, and <clears throat> we moved with a corporate transfer. I fought it, kicking and screaming. I didn't want to come. Uh, I'd accepted a transfer to another city, and, and so I, I could not relent entirely when the company changed direction and wanted me to move to Houston instead of Austin. And, but I think back, and I look at the ripple effect of that decision wasn't unlawful. It was adiaphora. It was indifferent whether or not I accept a transfer with my corporate employer or not. And yet, how different, how fundamentally different our lives would be with a different choice. God used a second cause. Used the freedom of that second cause. And then everything has happened exactly as God had decreed. Precisely as God had decreed. Well, there's a third word that we see here, and it's an interesting one. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating one to meditate upon. So he causes, by his providence, he orders them, all things, to fall out according to the nature of second causes, necessarily, freely, or contingently. Perhaps one of the most striking examples of this is found in the book of 1 Kings. You remember King Ahab, uh, all, all the, I mean, even from a child, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the Bible stories, everybody remembers King Ahab. What do we remember most about King Ahab? His wickedness. I mean, of all the wicked kings of Israel, Ahab stood out. He was the most wicked, and he had a very wicked wife to accompany him in all that he did. But there was a scene, there's an episode, it's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 22. The, the, the evil and wicked King Ahab, along with Jehoshaphat, were going out to war against the Syrians. And the Lord sent a prophet. He sent a prophet to Ahab to tell him he's going to die. And if you look at verse... 20, let's see, let's start in, in verse 24. Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and, and said, how did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah, this is the prophet, said, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. 
And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken to me. And he said, hear all you people. No, no. that seems somewhat cryptic. What's happening? Well, the Lord had sent Micaiah to tell Ahab that he's going to die. That his number was up. The Lord was going to take him. And Ahab says, I know how I can thwart the eternal decree of God. I lock up the prophet. I kill the messenger. And he attempts that. And he says, put, him in, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. In other words, I'm going to return. This isn't going to happen according to God's decree. God may have said it, but it's not actually going to happen. And Micaiah went so far as to say, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. In other words, even if you decide that you're going to hide in the basement, you're still going to die. There is no escaping this. And Ahab says, watch me. Put the, put the prophet in prison. And then what does Ahab do? Remember the story? What does Ahab do? Kids, you remember what does he do? Remember? He goes out to battle, but he disguises himself. He tries to trick his opponents. He tries to trick his enemies by thinking he's not the king. Because he, he reasons in, him, in himself, if I'm not dressed as the king, if I'm not in my royal robes, then I'll be safe. No one will be coming for me. But that didn't work out so well, did it? Look what happens next. Verse 29, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear the robes. <laughs> Jehoshaphat's going to say, wait, what I do? You know, if there's a target on the king's back, why do I want to wear the robes? <clears throat> Maybe Jehoshaphat knew something that Ahab didn't. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. So, sounds like his disguise is going to work. His enemy had said, don't, don't mess with the little guys. Don't mess with the underlings. Don't mess with the lesser men. I want the king and nothing less than that. And, verse 32, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now, there's, there's some comedy here, I think. If you were to make a movie of this, surely this would be uh, a, a, a point of humor. When they're all coming after Jehoshaphat, who's de decked out in all the royal robes, and it says, kind of in an understated way, he cried out. He screamed like a little girl. <laughs> don't shoot! Don't shoot! I'm not the king! Verse 34, But a certain man, drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. 
And the battle continued that day. And the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, and about sunset a cry went out through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. So what happens? The decree of God falls out according to the nature of second causes, in this case, contingently. In this case, it's contingent. Here, Ahab has done everything he can to thwart the declared, revealed will of God. He even sends a decoy out in the form of Jehoshaphat, dressed in his royal robes, in the royal chariot. Jehoshaphat lives. But we're told a certain man, a nameless, rank-and-file soldier, draws back his bow. The text tells us, at random. And there's kind of a cheeky irony in the statement, at random. And we're all kind of winking because we know the decree of God. We know nothing's at random. And yet it was contingent. What happens? Those of you who've ever, if you've ever fired a bow, especially if you fired an arrow into the air, you, you watch the thing, it goes in an arc, and, and it's impossible to declare where that's going to land. And some of these old longbows could fly hundreds of yards with a large, heavy arrowhead. And not only did the arrow happen to go in King Ahab's direction, not only did it happen at random to strike him, but it just happened at random to find the vulnerability in his armor and went between the plates of his armor. God's decree was carried out contingent. It wasn't necessary. That arrow was it didn't that arrow when it when it took flight, it didn't necessarily find Ahab, did it? Could have hit anybody, or could have hit no one. It didn't come out freely. I mean, it wasn't the will of the archer. It wasn't like he he was the sniper who was trained and skilled, saw through the ruse, understood Jehoshaphat wasn't really the king, and spotted Ahab and fired with precision. That could have happened. That wasn't what happened. Just firing his arrow, which was common in the ancient tactics of battle. You had a mass of an army on one side and a mass on the other, and, and the archers would just lob arrows and see who they could hit. This fell out contingently. Ahab wanted to keep himself safe. He wanted to avoid the decree of God. He wanted to avoid death, obviously. And he did it. So when we think about second causes, I hope that this is not only just a, as I said earlier, not just an intellectual pursuit for us, but a comfort to our souls as God's people. That God, according to his wisdom, is perfectly capable of causing his decree to work out in a variety of ways. God is not so constrained that his decree can only come by necessary second causes. He's, he's confined to using only the forces of nature, for example. No, he could even use the free choices of sinful men to accomplish his purposes. When, when you are facing difficulties in, in your home, your extended family, in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in the marketplace, wherever you live, wherever you, you are dealing with others, 
and, and you're having those, those difficulties, and you're seeing wicked men, and you're seeing their, their exploits, you're seeing even, as the psalmist often decried, even their prosperity. How, how, is, how is God's decree going to work? Because it seems as if, at times, evil men have the upper hand. Evil men are prosperous. They're winning in some ways. They're, they're, they're better organized. They're smarter. They're better funded. They're, whatever the, the situation is. And we can look at that and say, God is freely using them as a second cause to work out his decree. We don't know what that decree is often. In the case of King Ahab, we knew what the decree of God was. He'd sent a prophet to tell them. We often don't know what God's specific purpose is or what God's specific um, end is. But we do know he works according to second causes that fall out necessarily, freely, and even contingently. Even things that we might say, to, to borrow the language from 1 Kings, seem to happen at random. How in the world did that work out? And you can look back at your own life and see things that seem to be random at the time. But now you know there was nothing random about that. You see how God used that. You see the purposes of God in it. And, and saints, may we take comfort in recognizing those things. I'll close there. Next, next week as we come, come back, we're going to think about this related to second causes is the very specific use of means. How does God use, what means does God use? And how does God use means to accomplish his decree by way of his providence? Any questions? About first and second causes, yeah. Uh huh. Amen. You know, thinking about the, the sermon text this morning, there was some, some things that even as I was meditating, kind of going over my notes this morning, um, dawned on me. And I'll, I'll save that because we're short on time and I don't want to preach the sermon just yet. But that, that idea of, of the comfort of, that we have, recognizing that God is in those, even the calamitous events, that he's revealing himself in those. Um, and so, yes, the unbeliever 
doesn't see the second cause, or sees only the second cause and doesn't see the first cause. But according to Romans 1, why, why does he only see the second cause? Because he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The, the, the works of God, the attributes of God are plain. I mean, the, the unbeliever ought to be able to see that God is the first cause. Um, that when, he, when the farmer brings in his crops, he, he can think about all of his labor and all that went into to, to the preparing of the soil and, and the planting of the crops and the harvesting of the crops and all the labor that he had to pay and, and all the machinery he had to maintain and all that had to be done is with the way of second causes. But any believing farmer will give thanks to God and know that all of this ultimately came from the hand of God. He's the one who provided the increase. Um, and, and so it is with our, our labors as well. And isn't there a temptation... Uh, Christian on a regular basis for us to neglect God as the first cause. And particularly in our prosperity. We neglect to see God as the first cause. Let's, let's pray and we'll take a short break. Father, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you are a most wise God. It is beyond our comprehension how you work out your decree in creation and providence and do so infallibly and immutably and yet use the, the constantly changing means and agents of, of humanity, of the world around us, even contingent causes. Uh, we thank you that uh, for the opportunity to meditate upon these things and I pray that this would be a comfort to the hearts of your people and, and that we would grow in our security and our certainty that our God is good and that He does good. And all that He does is good. Amen.